Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 1. It says, So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. In his days, the land was quiet ten years. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods in the high places and broke down the images and cut down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. He also took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images and the kingdom was quiet before him. And then down in verse 9 of the same chapter. And there came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian with a host of a thousand thousand, that's a million men, and 300 chariots, and they came unto Marisha. Then Asa went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephathah at Marisha. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go out against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Then chapter 15, verse 1. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel has been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when they, in their trouble, did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Be strong, you, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year of the reign of Asa. And then in chapter 16 now in verse 1. In the sixth and 30th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, 
that dwelt at Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. And Ben-Hadad hearkened unto King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they smote Ijon and Dan and Abel-Maim and all the store cities of Naphtali. And it came to pass when Baasha heard it, that he left off building of Ramah and let his work cease. Then Asa the king took all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and the timber thereof wherewith Baasha was building. And he built therewith Geba and Mizpah. And at that time, Hanani the seer or the prophet came to Asa the king of Judah and said unto him, because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a large host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you did rely on the Lord, he delivered them out of your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you shall have wars. Then Asa was wroth with the, the seer and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. And behold, the acts of Asa first and last Lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease, he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers and died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. And they buried him in his own sepulchers, which he had made for himself in the city of David and laid him in the bed, which was filled with sweet odors and diverse kinds of spices prepared by the apothecary's art. And they made a very great burning for him. One of the things that amazes me the most about the female species, above all of the other many things that, that amaze me about them, you, is your ability, incredible ability to multitask. I don't know that there's anything that impresses me more than to watch my wife uh, go through a day or go through a week or even just an hour or one task and just the amount of things that she can keep in her mind and stay on top of and not, and not drop anything in the process of all of that. That is part of God that was completely given to the female. And we have none of it in, in, on our side of things. It's, we are one thing at a time. But what impresses me infinitely more than the multitasking ability of a female is the multitasking ability of our God. And when you think about all of the things that he upholds all at once, that the number of things that he sustains, both the big things and the small things, you know, the fact that he says that not a hair from one of our heads falls to the ground without him knowing it, 
that the rhythm and the pattern of every heartbeat of every person on top of every other system in terms of uh, our lives and then the plan of God and all that he is doing within the world. And you just think about everything that God is doing, the, the incredible power, and yet none of it ever falls to the ground. And from the very beginning, when God first set things in motion, Genesis 1.1, when God said, light be and light was, from that time, God already knew everything that he was going to do, not just in the world, but in every life of every person that ever lived. Known of God are all his works from the beginning of creation. And so God set forth his plan in motion. And so Adam was born. And God put him in a garden that he had created. And there were two trees and a choice that was made. And a choice was made that brought damnation upon all of humanity, which God already knew. And there was a plan already in place. And so God raised up a man named Abraham. And through him, God brought forth a nation. And God's intent in bringing forward that nation was to produce two things. First of all, truth that it would be through the prophets of Israel and the people of Israel that the scriptures would be laid down, that we might know who our God is and hear and read and, and believe his testimonies. And then also, secondly, that he would, through which he would bring a savior into the world, his own son, Jesus, through the nation that he had birthed, Israel, that would then take upon himself the sin of humanity by living a perfect, righteous life and then dying in the place of fallen, sinful man. And, and, and on top of all of that, all of the other things that God is doing. But by the time we come in the narrative of God's plan to the text that we read this morning in Second Chronicles, the nation that God had raised up has now been established. They've been brought into the land that God had promised to Abraham to give him for an inheritance. They had become a kingdom. God had raised up David, the gold standard among the kings. And then his son, Solomon, through whom God established the temple and, 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 and set their roots within the land and blessed the nation. And so they've now been prospered. But David and Solomon have come and gone off the scene at this time. And now a man by the name of Asa, who is the great grandson of Sol Solomon, has now come into power as uh, you know, the king in Israel or the southern portion of Israel, uh, that is Judah. Now, it's important that you know, just by way of background, as we look at the text this morning and, and what God has to say to us, that after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel that God had established was divided. There was a civil split within the nation. And 10 tribes split off to the north, and they became known as Israel. And two tribes remained in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and they became known as the kingdom of Judah. And so you have Israel total that makes up God's people, but you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and there was a constant uh, civil war that was taking place between Israel in the north and Judah in the south all throughout the period of the kings. And it's important that you know that because when we read about Baasha, the king of Israel, and Asa, the king of Judah, uh, that there was a war constantly that was going on between them. It's important to understand. Now concerning King Asa, the man whom we read about in our text in these chapters, he came to power at a very young age. He was probably about 10 years old when he assumed the throne. 
In those days, in that kingdom, it was a monarchy. Leaders were not elected. They were born into position. And, and Asa, being of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David and Solomon, he was the heir apparent to the throne. And so at the age of 10, he became the king. And he made a, a very wise choice very early in his life that he was going to set his heart to seek after God that he wouldn't rely upon himself or upon his counselors or even upon history or upon fate to be the, the ruler of his kingdom or his ways, but that he would put his trust completely in the Lord, his God. And God honored that position and decision by giving Asa 10 years of peace at the very beginning of his reign. That during that portion of his life when he's just trying to figure out who he is, and yet also at the same time figure out what he's to be doing and listen to the advisors and understand the history that at that time God gave him peace so that he would be able to do those things in a very uh, easy manner. And he didn't waste that opportunity. He used those 10 years to strengthen Israel militarily, to strengthen them morally, to do what was good and right in the eyes of God for the people. And God blessed and prospered the southern kingdom of Judah for those 10 years because of the decision that Asa had made. But after 10 years, now he's 20 years old, the first test comes to Asa. And that is that a million man opposing army comes up from the south, from the area of Ethiopia, the king of Ethiopia, and then this uh, confederate group of what's called in the Bible, the Lubims, which I don't know what a Lubim is, but I don't want to face a million of them. They now come up against Asa and, and seek to ambush them and destroy Judah's existence. And at that time, Asa made his second very wise decision. And that is that he didn't rely upon his own resources or abilities in the midst of that trial and pressure, but rather he turned it immediately to God who had put him in that position and he decided that he was going to rest upon or rely upon God completely for the ordering and then also the outcome of that battle. And he prays this incredibly simple and beautiful prayer that we read about in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, where he just very simply says, God, it's nothing with you to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. You see this host. These are your people. Don't let man prevail against you. We trust in you. The Bible says that God responded to that position in prayer by giving them victory and deliverance, though it took five years and Asa had to go into the battle, God gave them the victory and they came away from that with exceeding much spoil. The position of Asa in Judah was strengthened and things continued to go forward from there. Now, after that battle was over, when Asa was returning, God sent a prophet, this Azariah, the son of Oded, to meet with Asa and to deliver him a message. And his message was fourfold. He told Asa, first of all, listen to me carefully. He said, God is with you as long as you're with him. Secondly, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. If you seek him, he will find, you'll be found of you. And then he said, for a long time, Israel's been without God, without a teacher, without law. And you see and have seen what that looks like in the lives of the people. So you've seen, this is the message, you have seen both what God can do when you put your trust in him and you've seen what it looks like when people don't put their trust in him. Therefore, here's the message that Azariah had for uh, Asa. He said, therefore, be strong because it's worth it. Your work will be rewarded. 
And, and, and let me just say this, uh, dipping into the application portion of our study just a wee bit early. Understand that anytime God sends a prophet to you or gives to you a message or has a word for you, even if it's just in a church service where you know that God says something to you directly, understand this, that if God gives a word to you or to me, it's because he knows that we need it. He is not a chatterbox. And every one of us wishes that God spoke to us more often than he tends to. But when he does, know that there's a reason why he is and that we need to hear and heed the thing that he's saying to us. And so this message is given to Asa. Asa heeds the message and then cleans up the land even further, removes every influence of evil. The heart of the people are rallied behind him in his cause and many, even in the northern kingdom of Israel, defect from Baasha and give their allegiance to Asa in the south because they see that the Lord is with him. And that is followed by 20 years of rest in the land. God blesses them with a prolonged season of peace and prosperity because of their position of putting their trust completely in him. But then, 20 years after that takes place in the 36th year of Asa, now the second test comes. And the second test, much smaller than the first test, comes from the king Baasha in the northern territory of Israel, who invades the southern portion of Judah and cuts off the main thoroughfare that heads into and out of the capital city with the intent of weakening Asa's hold of it so that he might ultimately go in and take over. So Baasha takes Ramah, that key city, and now Asa has a problem and Asa has some decisions to make. And Asa makes a decision that is a complete 180 from the way he handled the conflict that came 20 years previously. Rather than turning the problem over to God and declaring faith and trust and asking God for the outcome, what he does is he dips into the treasuries of the temple and then into the bank account that is of his own money. And then he uses that money and he writes a letter to a sworn enemy of both Israel and Judah, this king of Syria, this man, Ben-Hadad. And he pays him, essentially, to break his allegiance with Baasha and to give his allegiance to Asa. And he says, here's a great sum of money. I'm making it worth your while. My father did this to you. You did it for him. Now do it for me. Ben Hadad sees the money. He says, hey, this is more profitable for me. I can kill two birds with one stone with this. And so Ben Hadad obliges Asa. And his course of action is that he goes up into the northern territory, takes a couple of cities that are right on his border, draws Baasha away from Ramah in the siege that he had laid on Jerusalem. And thus Asa now has freedom to move into that territory, destroy the plan of Baasha, use his resources for his own purposes back in Judah. And by all outward appearances, it seems as though the plan has worked flawlessly. The problem of Baasha is solved. We got some free construction materials out of it and nothing ventured, nothing gained. We win on every side of this. Only one problem. 
there was one person that wasn't pleased with the way this whole thing went out. And that was God himself. God didn't like it. And so God sends a prophet now to Asa the second time. Not the same prophet, but this time a man by the name of Hanani. And the message that Hanani now gives to Asa, he says, because you have relied upon the king of Syria and have not relied upon the Lord your God, therefore, the king of Syria has escaped out of your hand. And then he reminds him of what happened 20 years ago. He says, we're not the Ethiopians and the Lubins, a huge host with many chariots. And you relied upon God and he delivered you from it. And then he gives to him a message, which has become one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 9, he said, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose heart is perfect toward him that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And then he concludes the message by telling him, herein you have done foolishly, for from now on you will have wars. And rather than softening his heart, rather than humbling himself, rather than repenting of the position that he took, the Bible tells us that he hardened his heart, that he was in a rage with Hanani for bringing this rebuke to him, that he put him in a prison, that he oppressed whatever people were on the side of Hanani and in, in, in agreement with his message and that he went on his way regardless of what he knew the will of God to be and the response of God and the heart of God in this thing. And then it tells us the outcome of his life is that just within two years, his third trial came. And his third trial was that he was diseased in his feet, yet in that disease, he sought not to the Lord, but rather to the physicians and it only took two years for that disease then to take his life, not able, the physicians, not able to help him in the thing. And he is, uh, uh, ends his course by being buried in the grave that he then dug for himself. Now, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 11, the Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow, and that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, his young protege and son in the faith, and he said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped and complete, lacking nothing. And the Bible on every page has something to say to a believer in every generation. And the passage and portion of scripture that we looked at this morning very definitely has something to say to us here this morning, the heart of God given to us that we might save ourselves from some unnecessary pain and tragedy and also that we might obtain some divine help and intervention for our good. What this passage puts before us this morning is, first of all, what God can do and what God is willing to do for those who put their trust in him. The message that Hanani brought to uh, um, Asa in that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth looking for those uh, whose heart is perfect towards him. The first thing that I notice about that promise that's given there is the all-inclusivity of it. 
You notice that it says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. Now, what that means is that God is not looking within a particular demographic for someone he can help and that he can show himself strong for. He's not looking simply within the confines of the nation of Israel or even within the confines of the church or a church or or a particular denomination. You don't have to be a certain age or have a certain level of education. There's absolutely nothing that disqualifies anyone with a heartbeat from obtaining all of the help from God that it's in the power and ability of God to give. It's all inclusive. His eyes go throughout all the earth regardless of anything, looking for someone whose trust is in him that he might show himself strong on their behalf. We say, well, what does it look like to have God show himself strong on your behalf? I think the greatest example that I could hold before you is very simply what happened to Asa early in his life when he set his heart to seek the Lord. He was facing a host of a million men. He had no chance as a young and un experienced king with the resources at his hand to win in that battle. And yet he chose to rely upon the Lord in the midst of those circumstances. God then meeting him with strength caused him to overcome in spite of those odds that were stacked against him. And God showed himself strong on behalf of Asa. I think of a young Joshua newly acquiring the reins of leadership from Moses, his predecessor. And facing before him the walls of the city of Jericho, without experience, without a plan, without knowing how to impregnate an impregnable city with his hosts and with his military and his strength, yet having a command of God to do it. And yet he trusted in the Lord completely, and he saw through that trust the walls of that city fall down, and it was taken without a battle. I think of a young Jonathan, who walking about with just his armor bearer on a day, said to him on a whim, it isn't, God doesn't need an entire army to win a battle. God can win a battle with two people just as quickly as he can win a battle with a whole host and a whole army. Maybe God will deliver that garrison of the Philistine into our hands. Let's go see. And two men, with the help of God, because they trusted in God, took down an entire army, God showing himself strong on their behalf. I think of a young David in the same season who took down a giant that everyone else in Israel was afraid to fight who in spite of the threat and the attacks of a jealous King Saul came through his trial in the wilderness and came to the throne and became the the, the gold standard among the kings before God because he trusted in the Lord. I think of Paul and Silas in the New Testament who sat bound in a prison waiting to see what would happen, their backs just beaten and yet at midnight putting their trust in God, singing hymns to him when it looked like there could be no deliverance, putting their trust in him And God sending an earthquake, breaking the chains, setting them free and giving them an open door to plant a church in the city of Philippi. And not just in the confines of scripture, but what God has done in the lives of his people throughout every generation and age of God's history upon the earth. For those who put their trust in him, there is absolutely no limit to what God can do within their life. And that includes the present era because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his eyes still search over the course of the whole earth, looking for those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now, I know that this is true. And those of us that know Christ, we know that this is true. But yet still, in spite of it, 
There's a couple of hurdles in our minds when we read a verse like this that somehow we think that we're blocked off from having this kind of help from God. Sometimes, at least for me, and I can only speak for me, one of the hurdles that I face in, in, in trusting in God completely in my life, it isn't in his ability to do whatever it is that I need, but so often what it is is in his willingness to help me in these things. When I think about how vast the number of things that God is taking care of and how many they are and how important some of them are, and then I consider in light of that how small my issues seem to be or the things that are so oppressive to me in light of all those things, I think, well, what care does God have or what time does God have to give himself to issues that I might have? And the problem with that thinking is that what we're doing is that we are denying God his power of omnipotence. Omnipotence is just simply a fancy biblical word that means all-powerful. The Bible teaches us that God is all-powerful. And what that means is that God is infinitely powerful, meaning that the power of God has no limit. It has no boundary. You can never come to a point where you say, well, the power of God reaches this far and that's as far as it reaches. But rather, if God's power is infinite, then what that means is that you can go to the outer extreme of what you think the power of God is capable of doing. And there is still more on the beyond side of that than there is on the before side of that because his power is infinite. And not only is the infinitude of God's power exponentially forever or infinite in the big things, but listen, and this is where we fail, it is also infinitely forever in the small things. It searches out the smallest things. It cares about the smallest things. We think about the vastness of the universe and how it spans God's hand and what goes beyond that. But what about the complexity of something so small that we can't even see it with the naked eye? There is more information in one strand of DNA than 500 million miles of books that we could fill with information that we might be able to publish. It's the infinitude of God's ability to search out the smallest things. And when we think that God is too busy for me to bother him with something in my life, no matter how small it is, I'm denying him his power of omnipotence within my life. He cares about the smallest things. Not a hair of my head falls to the ground without him knowing it altogether. It's critical that I believe that he is not only able to accomplish all things and show himself strong, but that he is also willing. The second hurdle that I'm faced with when I look at this passage of scripture is that glaring word that I can't get past that I read where it says perfect. Did you catch that? Where it says that those whose heart is perfect towards him. And I look at that and I say, well, there's the asterisk right there. That's God's out into why he doesn't have to help me. What in the world does it mean to have a perfect heart before God? Anybody perfect in here today? The speaker certainly can't raise his hand. I can't claim perfection. I can tell you this. I can tell you what it doesn't mean to have a perfect heart. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. Because the Bible says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. 
The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one, that every one of us have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, John the Apostle writes, and he says, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this isn't teaching that God is only strong on behalf of those who are perfect or sinlessly perfect. That's not what it means. So then what does it mean to have a perfect heart before the Lord? What it means, it means to have a perfect trust in the Lord that I'm placing the full weight of my trust and my reliance upon God and his ability and his resources to address the things that happen in my life, no matter what they are, whether it's the big things or whether it's the full things, I'm fully trusting in him. The key word in this passage, all three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, is that one little word, rest that it uses in chapter 14, verse 11, when Asa prays and he says, for we rest in you. When Hanani, the prophet, came to Asa and he gives to him his rebuke for not trusting in the Lord, he says, because you have relied, same word, rest in the Hebrew, same exact word, relied on the king of Syria and not relied, rested on God. Therefore, is the king of Syria um, escaped out of your hand. When you did rely or rest in the Lord, did he not give you a great deliverance? The word rest means to rest or to support oneself upon. And here's what that means. It means that my position, the position of my life as a child of God, as one who's blood bought, who belongs to him, that the position of my life is that I am fully persuaded that he is willing, that he is able and that he is going to do what is absolutely best and right for me, no matter what the circumstances say or what the situation declares. Now, that's a very easy thing to profess, isn't it? It's altogether quite another thing when things in our lives aren't looking so good. Understand that Asa's problem when he faced Baasha, his second test, was not that he didn't have faith. It wasn't that he didn't have or couldn't have trust in God because he already proved that he could do that. It wasn't something that he lacked inside of him. The problem with Asa the second time is that he made a decision that he was not going to trust in the Lord with that situation. When he was facing a million men, he had no options. When you're facing a million men, you have God or you die. That's it. But when it was a much smaller, more manageable thing, he decided, I'm not going to bring this to God, but rather I'm, I, I can pull some money out of here. I can pull some money out of here. I can reconnect re, um, with someone who a generation ago was in the situation and I can work things out on paper and all of this, if this works, and, and I, I don't really need God in this thing because he's able to do it. I can do it another way. I don't really need God's resources. There's some stress involved in that. And he chose not to trust in God. And the problem with many Christians today when it comes to this concept of fully trusting in God is that we diversify our trust. You ever heard the the statement, don't put all your eggs in one basket? You know, usually it's someone giving us financial advice, you know, diversify your investments, don't put all your eggs in one basket and the whole thing. And Christians, we do that with our trust. When it comes to my salvation, I fully trust in God. I know I can't save myself. 
I know that I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I know that Jesus is the standard that God accepts and that if I put my trust in him, I'm saved. If I do anything else, I'm not. So I trust Jesus for my salvation. But what about with my money? What about with the things that I do or the decisions that I'm called to make or where I earn it from or where I invest it or any, anything else? Well, that's something that, you know, there's, there's complexities. I mean, there's human economy in this whole thing. And that's not really God's thing. God's thing is in the Bible and in church. This is in banks and in the world. God doesn't. So I'm not going to trust God when it comes to the money aspect of my life. I'm going to trust CNBC or I'm going to trust trends and economies, or I'm going to trust history, or I'm going to trust in my education to steer me through this thing. I'm not going to leave that in the hands of God. When it comes to my health, there's a lot of science out there. There are a lot of doctors. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of testimonials of how certain things have happened. And for me to put my trust in God in a particular health issue or need that I'm having seems somewhat irresponsible in light of the fact of all of the other things that are going on. So I can't really put all of my trust in God when it comes to things in health. When it comes to government, ugh, even God can't figure that out. <laughs> and so I'll do it at the ballot box or, you know, or whatever in the whole thing. And, and somehow God can't, can't put things back together or, or, or knit it together. So I'm not going to put my trust in God when it comes to the well-being of my nation or the nation but rather I'll put my trust in man and his ability to do things based upon the promises that always are kept by those that make them. But Christians diversify their trust. Why is it that those of us who profess and have faith in God often fail to put our full trust in God? Oftentimes, the reason is because that there's a cost involved in putting our trust in God. I mean, when it came to uh, when it came to the Ethiopians in the Lubims, it made perfect sense for Asa to put his full trust in God. I mean, when people came and said, "What are you going to do?" and he said, "I'm going to pray," they said, "Good idea." But when Baasha came, and it was a much smaller and more manageable situation. And people said, what are you going to do? For Baasha to reply, I'm sorry, Asa to reply and just say, well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God what he wants us to do. People would look and say, you, what do you mean you're going to pray? I mean, he's taken our city. You, you, there's no time to pray. Just do something. Use some money. Get the military together. Let's fix this thing. What do you mean you're going to pray? What was it like for Joshua walking around the city of Jericho once a day for seven days Trusting the word of God that the walls of the city were just going to fall down. You know what it cost him? For six days, he had to listen to the ridicule and the backbiting and deal with the doubt of the entire congregation of people thinking to themselves, we are following a leader that has absolutely no plan at all. We're walking around the walls of a city and he thinks this city is just going to fall down. And sometimes for us, trusting God costs something, doesn't it? When we're grown up, you know, and, and we still have parents that are alive and they ask us why we're doing certain things. Well, you're going to move where? Well, I just feel like this is where God is calling me to, to go and what he's called. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. It's just, I know that, that he's telling me to move there. Or, or, or the way that we choose to raise our kids. You're going you're gonna to do what with them? Well, that's not the way you were raised. I know. But this is what God says. Well, you can't do that. The, the, we, the world doesn't work that way. You can't just do that. No, I'm going to do it that way. And, and then when we begin to make decisions 
based upon the fact that we're putting our trust in God rather than in something else, it begins to cost us something. And that's when we choose to lean upon our own understanding rather than to trust in him. So what does, does perfect trust mean? It means I trust in God with every area of my life. Now, let me say this. What it doesn't mean to put my trust in God is that I do nothing. Asa didn't do nothing when he put his trust in God, right? He went out and fought. It took five years for the deliverance to come, but he went through, he trusted in God, not in himself. It wasn't about his plan. It wasn't for his glory. He used what was at his disposal. He committed it completely to God and entrusted the outcome to him and then gave him the glory for it. And that's where it was stayed. He took no credit for what was done in the end. And so too for us. To put our trust completely in God doesn't mean that we do nothing. It means that we're trusting not in our resources, not in our abilities, not in our plans, but we're trusting in God's ability, in God's resources, and in God's deliverance. And we're doing what he's leading us to do or when we do what we do, we're doing it always keeping him before us that God, I'm trusting in you, not in what I'm doing. But we do. And that's what Asa did. Now, in order for this to develop in us, this perfect heart that the prophet exhorts us to have and that God is looking for in the world, it requires, and listen here, we're winding towards the, the close, the landing gear is opening up and we're, the plane is beginning to descend. The worship team can put their weight forward a little bit, you know, here. It requires that the relationship that I have with God is a relationship that is based upon love and not upon anything else. But the relationship that I have with God must be founded and rooted in love. People have relationships with God for all kinds of reasons, sometimes out of law, sometimes out of duty, sometimes out of fear, sometimes out of a, a sincere desire to want to just to want to know him or they're, they're, they're intrigued by God. A lot of reasons people have relationship with God. But if the relationship that you or me have with God is based on anything else other than he loved me and gave himself for me and I love him because he first loved me, then eventually our trust is going to fail at some point. And here's why. Because love is the only thing in the universe that's powerful enough to short circuit my reason. And there's times when trusting God means that my reason has to be short circuited because God doesn't do things my way. His ways are as high as the heavens are above my ways and they're past finding out. And love can short circuit reason. Nothing else can. We see that every day, don't we? We see someone who never a day in their life cared anything about their appearance. And then all of a sudden, you see they have got you know, a perfect um, outfit and skinny jeans and a curtain cut and thick rim glasses. And you look and you say, what in the world? No, I know what happened to you. There's a girl. That's what happened to you. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you. Nothing would ever cause you to do that. You know, maybe someone else that has some sense, but not you, you know, unless there was a reason. But love can do that. Love can short-circuit reason. And sometimes that's important. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith which works by love. And if there's anything else binding me to God other than love, I'm in a dangerous place. It also means 
for me to, to have a perfect heart. It means that I walk in obedience to God's revealed will. The things that he has set forth in scripture that I'm to obey and walk in. See, the path that Jesus leads us in is called the narrow way. And when God is looking to do things within my life, he's looking for me to be in a certain place. And when I'm walking outside of what that is, it causes me to miss the appointments and the the providences of God for him to be able to lead my life the way that he wants. And so it's important, if my heart is going to be perfect towards him, that I'm walking in his ways. And that means even in the small things. When he says, don't gossip. When he says, don't slander. When he says, don't let any filthy communication come out of your mouth. When he says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. No matter how small the command is that God gives to us, each one of them is essential in seeing harmony in what God is seeking to do to strengthen us through the circumstances and the trials that we have in our life. Obedience is paramount within my life. It also means that I must cultivate the fruit of patience. That's a tough word, isn't it? But God's timing is not my timing. And if I'm not patient to let God do things his way in his time, then I'm tempted to jump in front of God and then I short circuit his plan and what he wants to do within my life. What were the consequences of Asa's lapse of trust? What did it cost him to take things into his own hands and not to rely completely on God? First of all, he sabotaged the plan that God already had for the sake of a quick and temporary solution. What did the prophet say to Asa when he rebuked him? He said, because you did this, relying upon the king of Syria, he has now escaped out of your hand. What does that mean? It means that God's plan all along was to do something that was gonna not only eliminate the immediate threat of Baasha in Ramah, but also at the same time destroy Ben-Hadad, the further threat that was in Syria, and bring Asa into the place where he was then the monarch over a unified Israel. God's plan was greater than what Asa could bring forth with his best strategizing. And Asa ruined it because he jumped in front of God. I wonder how many things we will look at in heaven that we that, that, that when we look over the span of our lives that we missed out on because we jumped in front, front of God. The second consequence of Asa's lapse of faith is that his future will now be filled with conflict rather than with peace. The prophet told him, from now on, you will have wars. How often is it that our best laid plans fall victim to the law of unintended consequences. You know what I'm talking about? Where you do something thinking that you're making the best move that you can, only to look back at that a week or two weeks or sometimes two minutes after a decision is made and say, I didn't see that coming. And yet it happens all the time. Our vanishing point, that means the furthest that we can see, is way too close to the front of our face for us to know how to make the best decisions for things that concern our future. And when we move and make decisions apart from God's leading within our lives, we're setting ourselves up to become victims to the law of unintended consequences. And then finally, the third plan that he had and the worship team can come, or the third consequence that he had. That was quick, let me say it again. The musicians can come forward at this time is that self-reliance 
became his pattern. That once he took things into his own hand within his life in one area of his life, and it seemed to work to the best of his knowledge, that when another issue came where it was time for him to trust in God, he couldn't find it in his hardened, prideful heart to trust in God for something that was again beyond his ability to repair. But he placed his trust in the physicians rather than in the Lord, and he ended up losing his life from the disease. The implication, of course, is that had he turned to God, he would have seen deliverance from it. In closing, God has every single one of us here today in a set of circumstances. And, And we face varied and complicated things and situations in our lives. We have marriages, we have families, we have children, we have careers, we have futures, we have mental problems. Every single one of us has these things. And we have a choice of how we're going to deal with all the things that come across our our, our plate in our screen every day. And that choice is very simple. We can either choose to say that God helps those who help themselves and that he's too big to know or to care about the complexities of my life And therefore, I'll navigate this, I'll strategize through this, I'll handle this myself. And we can fall victim to what that looks like in our lives. Or the greater opportunity that we have is to believe that the omnipotent, infinite God works as powerfully in the smallest things as he does in the biggest things. And that he's big enough to care about the complexities of my life. That he's able to work all things together for the good that his eye is still looking and searching and longing for those whose heart is trusting completely in him, that he might show himself strong on our behalf. Think about this. We believe, those of us that know Christ here today, that he is going to raise our mortal bodies from the dead. Think about how big that is. And we believe that. We place our whole trust in life in the fact that he is going to raise us from the dead. And yet how slow are we to believe him and to trust him for things that are way less than that in our life. But God is looking for those who will say, God, no matter what it is, let every area of my life be completely surrendered to you that I might know your strength and your deliverance in my life.